I'd like to thank uh, the church for inviting me uh, to speak. And uh, thank you very much, too, for your prayers. As uh, we hear from time to time, you're praying on the Wednesday, at the Wednesday evening uh, prayer meeting. So thank you very much. And Deborah uh, sends her warm greetings. We had a great five years here uh, in Hampstead and uh, four children at the Hampstead Parochial School. Uh, time's moved on, but we still very much enjoy coming back to see family and friends. Now, the title I was given uh, this morning, God's Mission to the Jewish People, and uh, if you follow the sheet, uh, the little crib sheet, you can see I've changed the title for the first point. I've put God's Mission for the Jewish People. What is God's mission for the Jewish people? Well, back in Exodus, the time of Moses, God commanded Moses to say to all the people of Israel, and I'm quoting from verses 3 and 6 of Exodus 19, although the whole earth is mine, God says, you, that is the people of Israel, will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, Deborah, my wife's father, is uh, from a line of Cohen's priests from the tribe of Levi. And that tradition is passed from hand uh, uh, by, uh, from generation to generation. Often uh, you, as others, will know a Mr. or Mrs. Cohen. Cohen means priest in Hebrew. And we know that God called Aaron as the first high priest, part of the uh, tribe of Levi. But he also declared to the whole people of Israel, you will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And those words are taken up in the epistle uh, that Peter writes, uh, addressing us all, that we are to be a kingdom of priests. We are all called to be mediators between man and God. And God has not revoked that promise and that calling to the Jewish people, to Israel. You will be, for me, a kingdom of priests, bringing man to God and God to man. A holy nation set apart with God at the centre. My second uh, point, why did God choose Israel? Well, there's uh, a famous Jewish joke, which I won't tell you in public. I might get round to saying it this evening in a more relaxed way, just before I leave this country to return to Switzerland. But the rabbis teach, and this is a Talmudic story, that God chose Israel because they merited his election. The story is told in the Talmud of um, Abraham's father, Terah, who was an idol maker, a fabricant, uh, a maker of idols. And he lived in Mesopotamia. And one day he went away in business and left his shop to be supervised by his son, Abraham. And the shop was full of wooden idols. And while uh, dad was away, Abraham was so incensed by the idol worship of his father and the people around him 
that he took an axe and destroyed all the wooden carvings, all the idols, except for the largest one, he planted the axe in the idol's head. And uh, when his father came back, Terach came back to uh, the shop and saw Abraham standing there with all the broken wooden carvings, idols, he was furious with his son and he said to his son, uh, I told you to look after them, what happened? And he said, well, the largest idol took an axe and he destroyed all the smaller ones, but not before one of the idols took the axe and smashed it into his head. And Terach replied to Abraham, don't be ridiculous, they are just gods of wood. And according to rabbinic tradition, Abraham was teaching his father a lesson about the only, the sole unique God creator of the world. And so Abraham was considered in Jewish tradition and is to this day as meriting the promises and selection of God. And that promise of choosing Abraham is passed down to Isaac and passed down to Jacob. But the Bible tells a very different story, that God did not choose Israel because Israel merited God's election. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verse 6, we read, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord didn't set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And that's still the case today, a tiny people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. And the same promise that God gave to Israel was made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, then to Moses. And this is the promise that God has made to his people. Not because of any inherent worth or merit, but simply because God loves Israel and has kept his promises. Now, the big question that has uh, uh, been tossed around in the Christian church for 2,000 years is, has that promise been revoked? And the reading we had from Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, God promising to Israel and to Judah a new covenant. And note that in the passage that Craig read, the promise of a new covenant is given to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In that particular passage, there is no mention of the non-Jews, the Gentiles. And in the passage, this is what the Lord says to the people of Israel through the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says, he who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. And then to continue to emphasize 
This is what the Lord says, only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. God is declaring that his covenant with Israel is everlasting. It will last as long as the natural laws exist in this world in spite of what Israel has done. It is a picture of the grace of God. And if we as Christians believe that God has rejected Israel, then we diminish the sovereign grace of God. We render the love and grace and mercy of God lower and lesser than it really is. If God could reject Israel, why could he not reject the church? Because of all it has done. And the point is that God's mercy is as far as the east is from the west, his love as high as the heavens are above. God still has his hand on Israel. And lest we be unsure, Paul makes it very clear, the Apostle Paul, in the following chapter to the one that was read, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, I ask then... Paul says. He loved asking questions in order to give the answers himself. Typical Jewish approach, rhetorical questions. Did God reject his people? And he answers, by no means, I myself am an Israelite, descendant of Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. And if Paul asks the question and gives the answer, it is because already in Rome, 2,000 years ago, the Christians there were asking the question, has God rejected Israel? A famous uh, passage in the Old Testament which speaks of the perennity, the everlasting nature of God's promises is from Numbers chapter 23. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? And these words, which often Christians were, uh, know of, are words that uh, uh, Balaam, the prophet hired by Balak, king of Moab, uh, the king of Moab wanted Balaam to curse the people of Israel. And he found that he could not curse Israel. And he concludes, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. God still loves Israel. And I believe still has a mission for the Jewish people to be what they were originally called to be, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But how can that be? And how will that be? And my second point on the sheets, church, the church's mission to the Jewish people. Our role as Christians, Jews and Gentiles in Christ. And I put the headings all mentioning the word salvation. The first point in our mission as Christians, God's mission to the Jewish people is for us as Christians to have a heartfelt longing for the salvation of the Jewish people. 
In fact, a heartfelt longing for the salvation of any people. I came to Christ at university in Bristol, and uh, that was over 30 years ago. And for two years, um, I knew a Christian who shared his faith with me. And the day Christ came into my life, he told me that he and his parents and his sister, all committed Christians, had prayed for my salvation every day. A longing for my salvation. The words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 when he's speaking about his people in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. He's not blaming them for their unbelief. He is longing for their salvation. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the preceding chapter to the one that was read, he shows and, and speaks of his anguish that his Jewish people, by and large, have not received Christ. And he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience con confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, my own race, the people of Israel. And so often in the church's history there's been a triumphalism, uh, an attitude really of schadenfreude that the Jews have rejected Christ, have not accepted him. And Paul is in anguish. And he actually wishes that he could be anathema, cut off from God, were it able to bring salvation to his people. Moses, in Exodus chapter 32, when he's come down from uh, Mount Sinai, and his brother, his older brother Aaron, has, uh, uh, together with the people of Israel, uh, manufactured these, uh, the golden calf, the idols in gold. He is distraught, and he goes to the Lord and says, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. And in Jewish tradition from those days, there is the book of life. And the hope of every religious Jew, particularly at Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, leading up to Yom Kippur, is that God will inscribe his or her name in the book of life. And here Moses, who later Paul echoes, expressing the desire to be cut off from God, were it able to bring salvation to his people. And this is a challenge to us as Christians to have this longing for the salvation of those who don't know Christ. My second point under the church's mission to the Jewish people is to pray for the salvation of the Jewish people. There is no greater prayer than to pray 
for the salvation of someone, that that person will come to know God in a personal way. And in the first verse of the reading that Craig read to us, chapter 10, verse 1 of Romans, brothers, he addresses the Gentile Christians in Rome as his brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer for the Jews is that they may be saved. It is good to pray for political peace, to pray for uh, all sorts of material things, uh, to pray that there be peace in the Middle East is very worthy, but there will be no peace without the Prince of Peace. Isaiah refers to the Messiah not only as the uh, wonderful counsellor, almighty God, but Prince of Peace. A, uh, a child is born, Isaiah says, a son is given, he will be called the Prince of Peace. That was a verse on a Christmas card sent to my wife Deborah before she became a Christian. And she noticed that the quote was from the prophet Isaiah. She said to herself, but he's one of our prophets, a Jewish prophet. Who is this prophet talking about? A child to be born who would bring peace. And she, like many, I was going to say Jewish people, but all people, looking not so much for world peace or peace in Israel, but peace in her own life. And that was one of the steps to her coming to Christ. But here Paul is saying, as if it was his only prayer, as if it was his only longing for his people to be saved. And I thank God for the Christian family and one of my closest friends who is a retired headmaster in Cardiff, he and his family, as I said, praying for my salvation every day for two years. The next point, witness for salvation. That's really what our mission, Jews for Jesus, is about. Our raison d'etre is to preach the gospel, to share Christ with Jewish people. And here, Paul, in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 17, is really, I think, telling off the Christians in Rome for being passive in their approach to Jewish people. Instead of witnessing to them about Christ, they're wondering why the Jews don't believe in Christ. So in verse 14, Paul says to them, how then can they, and he's speaking of the people of Israel, how can they call on the one they haven't believed in? How can non-Christians today call on Christ if they don't believe in him? And specifically, Paul is talking about Jewish people. How do you expect Jews to call on Jesus as Christ or Messiah if they don't believe in him? And how can they believe in the one of whom they haven't heard? And I'll just pause there a moment because often Christians will say to me, but obviously the Jewish people heard about Jesus. Obviously the Jewish people today know the name of Jesus. And I say yes, they know the name of Jesus, but they haven't heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll give you an example from our years 
as missionaries in Paris. And in those days, I was perhaps bolder than today. We had a, a van with the name of our mission, Juif pour Jésus, Jews for Jesus, on the side, on the front and the back, and even on the roof of the van. It was a bit of a joke, just in case anyone in the flats above us uh, should notice the name. And one day a lady stopped by the van and she said, what on earth is this? I'm Jewish, but what is Juif pour Jésus? And I said, we're Jews who believe in Jesus. And she said, I've never heard of that, but I'm interested. She came to a Bible study in our home and we just happened to be going through John's Gospel. We just happened to be going through John chapter 10. And Jesus begins with the words, I am the good shepherd. And then a few verses later, Jesus repeats the same words. And I had Ethel reading the text. And the second time Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, she stopped and said, who does Jesus think he is? He thinks he's God. The Lord is my shepherd, she said, quoting from Psalm 23. And I said, you're quite right, Ethel. Jesus is saying he is God. And often we miss it, but just those words, the Lord is my shepherd, is a divine statement. And then a few verses later, Ethel read the words where Jesus says, I give my life of my own will. No one takes it from me. This is the will of the Father. I give it to take it up again. And she exclaimed, my goodness, for 2,000 years we have been accused of killing Christ. And there he states that he's giving his life for us. And that is the good news which we have been called to share with a largely unbelieving world. Some Christians will say to me, well, the Jews have the Old Testament, the prophecies, surely they should see that Jesus is the Messiah. But we know it's not because a Bible is in a home that someone comes to Christ. Our role as Christians, we share the good news, we're ambassadors for Christ, we are spokesmen for Christ. And unless we are to speak the words of the gospel, people will not come to believe. It is the same for Jewish people as for everyone else. There's a Jewish saying uh, that the Jews are just like everyone, just more so. And if you think that Jewish people can come to Christ without hearing the message, then you are mistaken. And Paul goes on in verse 15, how can they preach unless they're sent? The end of verse 14, sorry, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? And Paul is not talking about himself and Billy Graham standing up on a podium preaching, but simply sharing the gospel of Christ. And most of that comes through friendships, it comes through personal contacts at work, and through family and friends. Sometimes I'm asked, uh, so how does one share and witness to Jewish people? And there's a Jewish expression, love is a good thing, but love with noodles is better. So a good way is simply spending time eating, uh, spending time 
uh, with people. In verse 17, after Paul has said, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, he says, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. I've been a missionary uh, full-time, so to speak, for uh, uh, about 30 years, and it's still uh, often a battle to speak of Christ. Easy to speak of religion, of God, of the church. But faith comes through the word of Christ. And uh, Andy uh, was sharing with me something which I delighted in. He likes sharing and talking with Jewish people because they're responsive, because they have the Old Testament. Many will accept the Old Testament. A sense that you're talking to a people who don't believe largely, but are willing to argue. And often we are not willing to argue for what we believe. It was Abraham Lincoln who once said, to sin by silence when we should speak makes cowards of men. Now often uh, the speaking can be through books. Uh, I'm flattered but a bit uh, irritated when uh, Christians say, but you Jews, you are the people of the book. Uh, very flattering, but in fact we're a people who read lots of books but not the Bible. And even Judaism is not focused on reading the Old Testament. It's focused around the Talmud. So I would recommend, there are a number of books uh, which I have on the book table and back. I will recommend one because I have this funny feeling that it might be relevant to folk at St. John's. It's called Jewish Doctors Meet the Great Physician. Testimonies of Jewish doctors who've come to Christ. And I don't know if, if here at St. John's there's any uh, profession that people have which outnumbers the number of doctors in your midst. The point is that uh, often Jewish people uh, won't necessarily ask questions of Christians, but they may well read uh, books, testimonies, or go online. My last point uh, under salvation is hope for salvation. What is our expectation for people who don't believe? What is our expectation in terms of the receptivity of Jews coming to Christ? Well, Paul in chapter 11 of Romans, so one chapter further on from the reading, in verse 11, he says to the Christians in Rome about the Jewish people, verse 11, again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Was it a final rejection? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. That was certainly one of the reasons I came to Christ. I was envious by the peace and tranquility and the friendliness of a Christian friend at university. And then Paul goes on, but if their transgression means riches to the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? And verse 13, I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow 
arouse my own people, the Jewish people, to envy and save some of them. So his expectation at the time was some Jews would come to Christ. And then he concludes, verse 15, for if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, had Christ not been crucified, there would be no salvation, no reconciliation for the world. And so he goes on to say, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? He is a realist. He realizes that at his time there will be some Jews coming to Christ, but he has the hope that one day there will be a revival where Jews recognize their Messiah en masse. And I happen to believe that one day Jews and Israel will be persecuted, not above all for being Jewish, but because of their faith in Christ. We will see maybe from heaven, that day certainly hasn't come, but here there is certainly, on Paul's part, a hope and an expectation that Jews will turn to Christ. And so to come on to the obstacles in verse 3, very briefly, and I say very briefly because um, I've divided the obstacles to faith for Jewish people into Jewish obstacles and Christian obstacles. And for the Jewish obstacles to belief in Jesus, if you're really interested, uh, there's a book called Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, Volume 1, which is a mere 250 pages, and there are five volumes on the table there. So I will be going to Singapore in two weeks' time to speak in churches, and they love that sort of thing. There's hardly any Jews in Singapore, but they will be lapping up that book. So if you want to find out why Jewish people don't believe in Jesus, maybe start with volume one, but no, there are five volumes. But I will just mention a couple. There is this entrenched, ingrained, generational uh, understanding which is part of our DNA that you cannot be a Jew and a Christian. I remember once when I was still working in what my parents called a respectable job, I was an accountant, I went to hear a debate uh, between a pastor and a rabbi somewhere in North London, I don't remember where, it was in a hall, roughly 200 people present, the theme was, is Jesus the Jewish Messiah? And at the end of the debate, I thought the pastor had been very gracious and the rabbi had been very wily. It brought to life Jesus talking of us being as innocent as doves and as wise as serpents. I thought the rabbi had been a little bit of a serpent in not being quite truthful. Uh, without going into details, I then wrote to the rabbi and uh, proposed a debate with him as a Jewish Christian because I thought the pastor as a Gentile Christian was a little bit um, um, not quite bold enough in his... He was too deferential to the rabbi. So I wrote to the rabbi and I suggested a debate with myself as a Jewish Christian or another Jewish Christian. And he wrote back, Dear Mr. Pash, manuscript letter, I cannot debate with you because you don't exist. 
A Jewish Christian doesn't exist in the same way as a black, white, or a circular square don't exist. Now, of course, he was trying to avoid entering a debate, and that really is the position of the synagogue and has been for centuries. The synagogue doesn't really want to invite Christians or Jewish Christians to debate over the uh, mess messianic claims of Christ. Uh, rather amazingly, um, in the time we've been in Geneva, I was invited to join a private Jewish circle of pretty high-powered and intimidating uh, French-speaking Jews who were mainly tax exiles from France. And uh, the president of this private circle is the son of a North African rabbi. His, uh, his brother is a, a senior rabbi in France. And he leads this Jewish, it's called the Cercle de Réflexion, you know, to think about all sorts of topics because we Jewish people enjoy debating. And most of the topics are political or to do with Israel, always a theme connected with the Jewish people. And I went as a participant, a guest on three occasions, was then invited to become a member. And then I was invited to give a talk to the group. Uh, every month we would meet and one of the members or a guest would give a talk and of course there'd be a lot of arguing, a lot of food, and really the speaker was just a pretext for having a good time. But the president actually asked me if I could speak, and this was the title he gave me, translating from the French, Jews for Jesus in the 21st century, identity crisis or reasoned conclusion. And by adding reasoned conclusion, he was saying that he wondered whether Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. So when we read in Romans, in our translation, the end of the law, the Greek word is really fulfillment. Jesus said, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so he was accepting that for most Jews, a Jew who says he's a Christian is someone who's got an identity crisis. He doesn't know whether he's black or white, whether he drives on the left side of the road or the right side. But he himself understood that the real issue was, is Jesus the promised Messiah? After Paul's conversion, he still speaks of himself as a Jew, not a former Jew. When he refers to Peter, and he criticizes the apostle Peter for separating himself from the Gentiles when the Jewish Christians come along, he says to him, you who are a Jew, and often there is this assumption that once you are a Christian, you are no longer a Jew. I have been asked a, a number of times uh, in churches whether I was a real Jew before I became a Christian. And I can understand what they're thinking. It's a bit like Woody Allen in the film Annie Hall. Uh, they picture maybe a Jew who had a black hat and black suit and had his peyot, his ringlocks and his uh, tzitzit. And I say, no, I wasn't a real Jew before I came to Christ, but I am now. <laughs> and usually it uh, leads to a nice chuckle from uh, 
uh, Christians like this morning. But it's not just a, a, a little quip. It is a biblical truth. The real Jew is not the one who's just circumcised outwardly, but who has received Christ and has received the inner circumcision. And so I would say as Christians, let us be confident in sharing Jesus with Jewish people that we are helping Jewish people fulfill their destiny. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I was very struck, uh, and this helped me in considering the claims of Christ, um, when I met uh, this Christian friend at university, and uh, one of the things he told me which really grabbed my attention was um, he had a personal relationship with God. And I thought, what a chutzpah, what a cheat to say, I know God. To say, I believe in God may be, but to say I know God was something that I, I found a little crazy. But he wasn't a crazy guy. And then he went on to say, I've been a Christian for one year. And I replied, well, I've been a Jew all my life. So what were you for the first 18 years of your life? And it was his opportunity to explain to me that you can be born Protestant or Jewish or Catholic or an atheist or a Muslim, but you only become a Christian if you are born again. And that was the beginning of a two-year discovery uh, for me. So what are some of the Christian obstacles? Maybe I've already spoken of the Christian obstacles to sharing Christ, a lack of confidence, a feeling maybe that Jews know the Old Testament so well that there's nothing you can share, uh, the feeling perhaps that the Jews rejected Jesus and so are a stiff-necked people. All these assumptions uh, deny the reality of the gospel. And I will conclude with a couple of uh, verses from the Apostle Paul. Chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God to salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. This gospel is the same gospel today as it was 2,000 years ago and the Jewish people are still God's people who need to hear that this message is sent to them first and also to the Gentile, that they might receive the fullness of life and the promise of eternal life in Christ. So let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that uh, you sent Jesus to be and not only the glory of Israel, but light for the nations. Thank you, Lord, that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, man and woman, boss and employee. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And Father, we pray that uh, you would strengthen our assurance, strengthen our faith that we may be ambassadors for Christ. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.